You are listening to a message from The Political Pastor. Each week, The Political Pastor expounds the Word of God to his local congregation. These messages are made available to you in podcast on thepoliticalpastor.com as well as other popular podcast platforms. Visit thepoliticalpastor.com and click on the podcast link at the top to find our full listing of podcasts. Our text today is often labeled as the account of the triumphal entry of Christ. Yet it really is more of a coronation of King Jesus. As rare the conditions in the United Kingdom may be, the coronation of King Jesus was absolutely unique. He was the king come to deliver his people. We do not cry out, God save the king, but rather we cry to our king, Lord, save us now. Turn with us to Mark chapter 11 verses 1 through 11 as the pastor delivers the sermon, Lord, save us now. If you take your Bibles and open up to the Gospel of Mark in chapter number 11. Mark chapter number 11. And we'll begin our reading in verse number 1 this morning. We have been exalting Christ as King all morning through our reading and through our song. You know, this week the UK witnessed a first since back in Winston Churchill's time when he was prime minister in England. Uh, There was the coronation of the British monarch, King Charles III, and it took place uh, to much delight for many around the world. But in my case, I almost wouldn't have known about it had not been scrolling through a few uh, news articles or just seen some headlines. But uh, I think someone maybe mentioned it to me this week. But outside of that, I probably wouldn't even know what was going on. But to me in the world, this is a big deal, right? And people were tuning in and they were watching and there was much fanfare and drama and celebration around this crowning of the king. You know, the crowning of a king is usually marked in such a way, isn't it? With celebration, with much fanfare. But our text today is oftentimes labeled as the account of the triumphal entry is the triumphal entry of Christ, yet really it's more of a coronation of King Jesus. And as rare as the coronations uh, in the UK may be, the coronation of King Jesus is absolutely unique. He was the king come to deliver his people. So we don't cry out today, God save the king, but rather we cry to our king, Lord, save us now. Mark chapter 1, look with me, or Mark chapter 11, look with me in verse number 1. And as they approached Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it back here. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them and they gave them permission. 
And they brought the colt to Jesus and put their garments on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their garments in the road, and others spread leafy branches, having cut them from the fields. And those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. The grass withers and the flower fades. Amen. Now, our study of the Gospel of Mark has brought us to the last third of this gospel. I know we've been there for a long time, but we're coming down to the last third of the gospel of Mark. And in this last third, the book focuses on the last seven days of Jesus' life. Now, comparatively, John's gospel devotes about uh, roughly half of his gospel to those last seven days of Jesus' life. But John also gives us a timeline for Jesus' time in Jerusalem. And and if you go to look at John's account, uh, you would gather there was about some four months, possibly, that he was in Jerusalem. Now, Mark tends to compress this down. Remember, he's kind of a man of action anyway. And uh, everything that's happening here is, is happening immediately. And he's going from one thing to another thing and to the action that's taking place, even more so than just the teaching that's happening. And so Mark compresses the timeline a little bit, but now we're getting into these last seven days of Jesus here at Jerusalem and leading up to his death. Now, the people would have probably had branches, by the way, for the Feast of Tabernacles, which actually happens in the fall. So if you're trying to put together a timeline of when this triumphal entry was, when everything took place, it might become a little bit uh, more difficult, maybe not what you've always heard traditionally, but typically we will practice um, remembering this time at Palm Sundays. We lead up toward um, our Resurrection Sunday celebrations. But regardless of when all of this took place, understand this, it was a significant time, and that's putting it lightly. These seven days or so were an extremely significant history-altering time. Jesus had set his face toward Jerusalem, and now we come to these this last week here, his, this last week of Jesus' life. Understand that Israel had been longing for this Messiah. They'd been long waiting for their coming king and their coming Messiah, a deliverer who would come and save their people. And their cry that we see in our text today is reflective of Psalm 118, which we'll look at a little bit later, where they cried out, Hosanna, a word meaning for God to save us and save us now. You see, Christ alone is our deliverer. Christ alone can save and save us now. And so today we cry out, to our deliverer in our distress. And we say, Lord, save us now. As we move through this passage today, we're going to find our sorrowful Savior. We'll see God's supernatural supply. We'll notice some scriptural symbols that are given to us in the text. 
And then we're going to see the shouting for salvation that occurs in this passage. Now notice in verse number one, I want you to see our sorrowful Savior as he is on his way ultimately to the cross. Verse one tells us that as they approached Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. Now, this area in which they are in is significant for several reasons. But I want you to look at these two places that are mentioned, Bethpage and Bethany. Some have said that Bethpage perhaps was more of a suburb of Jerusalem. Bethany was out just a little bit on the Mount of Olives or in that uh, general vicinity. But these two cities are significant also because of their name and what it means. This place called Bethpage literally means the house of unripe figs or of green figs, known for a special fig that grows in that area. We'll talk more about that next week when we find Jesus cursing the fig tree. But the the city of Bethany that we find here, that word is interesting as well because literally the word means house of sorrow. Could there be a more fitting place for Jesus to come to at this moment than the house of sorrow, the place called Bethany? This was the place where Lazarus was from, and we've seen great miracles take place here. But here it is in the vicinity of the Mount of Olives, which would be overlooking the city of Jerusalem. If you were to go out of Jerusalem, out through the walls, you would go out through the east gate and proceed to the Mount of Olives. This is where Bethany would be. So Jesus comes into this area, a place known as the house of sorrow, as he is looking forward to his death. Now, some of those who like to discredit scripture, and there's always plenty of those who want to do that, they would try to argue based on certain roads in modern times that, well, Jesus wouldn't have come this direction. He, he wouldn't have gone to Bethpage and then to Bethany. That would have been like out of order and backwards. Jesus wouldn't have proceeded this way. Big problem with that. The time when Jesus would have traversed this area, he would have been traveling on Roman roads that existed at the time. And we have since found that guess where the Roman road went? Exactly the direction that Mark tells us that Jesus traveled. So there's even further evidence for what the gospel says. Listen, there's no reason to question the word of God. There's no credible evidence to to disprove the word of God. And many will try and they will try and try again. And yet we are discovering all the time that it's exactly as God says it is. And that's really no surprise, is it? So Mark has an accurate account of what was taking place here and where Jesus came to. So we see the sorrowful Savior as he comes to Bethany ahead of his passion. It's the sorrow that's a result of this universal problem we've been preaching about. A problem of sin. It was because of the sin of mankind that Jesus was on his way to the cross. It's there that he would suffer the wrath of God for my sin and for your sin. And we see the sorrow that sin brings. The seriousness of sin is on display as we go through this last third of the Gospel of Mark. How is it that we take sin so lightly in our lives? 
when we see how serious a matter sin really is and what it cost our Savior and what he had to endure, it was a serious, solemn, sorrowful time. And understand, sin brings sorrow. It brings sorrow. The Bible tells us there's pleasure in sin, what? For a season, right? But that's not the ultimate end. Ultimately, sin always brings about sorrow. At some point, you will recognize that. It necessitated the suffering and death of our Savior Jesus. Our sin required that we would have a Savior who would bear the wrath of God that belonged to us. And oh, that this morning we would be sorrowful over our own sin and we would forsake it. You know, that's why I think it's so important that we come together like this every week and that we get into the Word of God. We should be doing this daily on our own, but there's this reminder when we come before Him together in fellowship and we open up the Word and we begin to preach and teach and we begin we begin to see ourselves as God sees us. As His Word and His Holy Spirit begins to speak to us. And we're reminded of the sinners that we are. That we're broken over the sin in our life. That we repent of the sin in our life. This is not a time for us to remain sorrowful. But you don't experience the joy of salvation. You don't experience the joy of your walk with Christ. As long as you continue to tolerate the sin in your life. But after the sorrow of sin and after the repentance of sin, then comes the joy. And so, at times we may wonder, why would you be so negative? Why would you be so hard? Why would you remind us that we are sinners? And the world loves to deviate from this message, don't they? In fact, our seeker-sensitive nature of churches today does exactly this thing. Because of the desire to build crowds and keep people and, and to make sure the funds keep flowing in and the, the programs keep going and the buildings keep growing, we have to make sure that we are not offensive to people. We don't want people to feel bad. We don't want people to feel sorrowful. We want them to be happy and joyful But we're doing a disservice when we do this because the reality is we're not addressing a root problem of sin. And if we don't address the root problem of sin, those people will never experience true joy. Before the true joy comes the sorrow. Are you sorrowful this morning over the sin in your life? Are you forsaking the sin in your life and finding victory over it? through the grace of Jesus Christ. In our passage today, we see a sorrowful Savior, but then notice as we move to verse 2, we see a supernatural supply. Mark eleven two, and he said to them, go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of the bystanders were saying to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them. 
and they gave them permission. Now, what is happening here in this section is a conscious fulfilling of prophecy. God has said this is what was going to take place. God had laid it out in his word, and he's accomplishing exactly what he said he would do. He's supplying everything necessary for his plan to work according to plan. We see that there is a cult involved. And when you study this word, you'll find that it's referring to the cult of a donkey. Not just, not just some horse, but we're talking about a donkey. Why is it significant? What would a, a king of the day typically ride? A horse. But not Jesus. He's going to come on a beast of burden, on a donkey. In fact, it would be an unridden colt. Look back in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, if you would like, or write it down. You can go back and read that later today. But in Zechariah 9, 9, this was already prophesied. It says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Make a loud shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and endowed with salvation, lowly and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a pack animal. Zechariah had already prophesied that this is the way that Christ Jesus would come riding in. This was a fulfilling of prophecy. Understand that the timing, the provision, everything about this story was perfect. It was perfect. When you look at the totality of history and the nature of God's plan, you can only conclude that God indeed is sovereign and executing His plan. Christ could not come at any better time than the time in which He came. It was the appointed set time. And you understand that everything about what was happening in the world at that time was completely situated perfectly for the arrival of Jesus? This is not happenstance. Can you imagine that at just this right time, Jesus says you're going to go to just this place and there's going to be exactly this colt of a donkey there that's never been ridden and you're going to bring it to me. And oh, by the way, the people whose donkey you're taking are going to let you take it. Can you imagine this just happening that way? I mean, it just just so happened that sure enough, there was a donkey there like Jesus said it would be just when it needed to be. When you look at all the details of this story, only one thing can be concluded, right? This is the supernatural work of God in His providence, in His timing, according to His plan. Everything was being carried out according to His will completely. Notice in verse number 3, Jesus said, if someone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. Now, interesting phrase that Jesus says of himself that the Lord has need of it. It would be perfectly normal and acceptable, even at this time, if a king desired a beast of burden, a donkey to carry a load, or a horse to be ridden, or whatever it was that he needed, If he needed it, he could commandeer it. He could take it because why? The king had need of it. 
So I'm taking this for the king's service. And in essence, this is what's happening as the disciples go out to take this colt of the donkey. They're going to say, the Lord has need of it when they're questioned. The king has need of it. The term Lord here is much more than just master. It was a favorite term of Christ, not seen so much in the gospel of Mark, but seen more so in the other gospels. But here in Mark's account, he tells us that Jesus uses this term of himself. And what he is referencing is that one, the people of that area would have known him by this title. But two, he is also saying of himself, the sovereign one, the Lord. The king of the Jews, the Lord. This is the one who has need, who requires this donkey. It's the sovereign king of the Jews. And in verse number four, they found it, it says, and they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the streets and they untied it. They found it Exactly as Jesus said. They went according to his word and it happened according to his word. His word never fails. Amen. His word never fails. And it will always be so. Everything happened according to his plan. Look at verse five and six. And some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying the coke? The colt, and they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. And that's important in verse number six. And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them. They acted according to his word, everything unfolding according to his plan. You know, this should give us great confidence. And knowing that God is sovereignly reigning over all. That his supernatural supply is present in us, around us, through us daily. We just simply obey. We act upon his word. We have no need for fear. Lack. Fear. Failure. You see, life lived by His Word is life lived in confidence because not one jot or tittle will ever pass away from His Word. As we proclaim each week when we read the text, and you could help me with this, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. You see, there, there are many things that will perish and fade, but never God's will, never God's word, never God's decree. When God speaks it, it is certain and it is sure. There's nothing you or I can do to upset that apple cart. <laughs> when he puts it in motion, we're not going to change the motion. Are you trusting in his word today? Do you love his word? Do you obey his word? Do you believe his word? I mean, do we believe it so completely that we would say, I, I believe because God's word says it, that he is firmly in control today? 
that he will supply all of my need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus? Isn't that what he said in his word? Do we believe it? The supernatural supply. But notice the third thing from our text in verse number seven. I want you to see some symbology here. Notice the scriptural symbol that's being given in verse seven. And they brought the cult to Jesus and put their garments on it and he sat on it. And many spread their garments in the road and others spread leafy branches, having cut them from the fields. Now, Jesus is being put on a cult that has never been ridden. If this is not miraculous, <laughs> you know, what else is? Um, if you've ever had any experience with breaking an animal to ride, you understand that this doesn't usually happen immediately. Even if you get on the animal for the first time and it doesn't buck you off, it's probably because you spent a lot of time up to that point working and training and doing various things to get the animal ready for that. So here's a cult that's never been ridden. And what happens? It's completely obedient to the king. And he sets on this cult that no one has ever ridden. This is important too because it was very common that no one else would ride the king's ride. <laughs> that ride was reserved for the king. No one else was to sit upon his beast, only the king. No one else had sat upon this beast until Christ Jesus did. And he did so clearly as a king. We saw Zechariah's prophecy earlier about this. But even prior to Zechariah, look with me in the book of Genesis in chapter number 49. This prophecy was given even before Zechariah. In Genesis 49 and in verse number 8. In context, Jacob has assembled his sons. As you know, they would be the tribes. And of which tribe did Jesus come from? You might remember the tribe of Judah. It's important. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? Genesis 49, look at verse number 8. Judah, as for you, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches. He lies down as a lion. As a lioness, who dares rouse him up? The scepter will not depart from Judah. Now, who the kingly lion is going to be the lion of Judah. And he says the scepter is never going to depart. This is going to be an eternal kingship that comes through Judah. Look again at verse 10. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Look at verse 11. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. Even prior to Zechariah, here was the prophecy of this lion of the tribe of Judah who would come and establish his eternal kingship. 
The garments we saw from our text were used as a saddle for Christ to sit upon. Other garments were placed along the pathway along with the palm branches that they had gathered from the fields. Now this is not without precedence either. What you're seeing is the red carpet treatment here, right? This donkey is going to be ridden for the first time. And he's going to be ridden by the king of kings and lord of lords. And he's going to go right down this path that's being lined with garments and palm branches. Second Kings 9 verse 13, at Jehu's coronation back in the Old Testament, listen what the scripture says about his coronation. Then they hurried and each man took his garment and placed it under him on the bare steps and blew the trumpet saying, Jehu is king. And so this was a precedent we saw even before Christ where the garments had been laid in the pathway as the king come out and was pronounced, this is our king. And that's what's happening. It's not the kind of king that they expected. He's not going to behave the way they expected a king to behave. But whether they really realize what they're doing and saying or not, they're lining the pathway just as it was of old, saying we're lining the path of the king. This is the king. This is the Messiah. This is the one we have been waiting for. So everything in this event pointed to the kingship of Christ. You see, he brought his kingdom, and yet many today still refuse to recognize his reign. He is king. He is Lord. He is sovereign. And we must bend the knee in honor and service to our king. And I would ask us as believers sometimes, because I think what happens is, And our study of end times and and all of those things, we miss a truth that remains, regardless of what your eschatology looks like. Jesus Christ is not going to be king. Jesus Christ is king. Do we believe that, really? Do we as believers say that Jesus Christ is king today? That he reigns, that he rules, that he is supreme? Is he sovereign or not? Is he king or not? Have we settled that in our own minds? That we're not just waiting for Christ to be king. Christ is king. And so we must declare to the nations that very thing. That's our commission to declare to them that they understand that he is king. That we must submit to him. That he's king over every sphere. Does your life demonstrate who is king? Are you a loyal subject of the king? Notice as we move to verse 9. We've seen our sorrowful savior in the supernatural supply scriptural symbols, but now notice the shouting for salvation in verse 9. And those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. We see the word here, Hosanna. 
This word can be translated as save now or save us now. But when the word Hosanna is presented, we're saying, Lord, save us now. Be our deliverer and deliver us now. You hear this cry of desperation, but also a cry of hope. In our desperate situation, we cry out hopeful that you will save us now. And so they're crying out to him, Hosanna. Now, where does this come from? This is from a section of the Psalms we know as the Hallel Psalms. These were Psalms of praise, Psalms 113 to Psalm 118. And the Jews would oftentimes use these at great celebrations and, and occasions. But in Psalm 118, and I'm going to ask you to turn there real quick. I want to look at just a few of those verses because this is where this statement comes from. Psalm 118 and verse number 22. Psalm 118 and verse 22. Notice the stone which the builders rejected. We know who that is, right? Who's the stone who the builders rejected? It's Christ Jesus, isn't it? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is from Yahweh. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which Yahweh has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Now look, especially at verse 25. This is this word, Hosanna. O Yahweh, save. O Yahweh, succeed. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of Yahweh. This is exactly what the people were quoting in our text in Mark. We have been blessed. We have blessed you from the house of Yahweh. Yahweh is God and he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I give thanks to you. You are my God, I exalt you. Give thanks to Yahweh for he is good, for his loving kindness endures forever. And what they are acknowledging in Mark chapter 11 is Jesus is coming in on this beast of burden. They're acknowledging that this is playing out before their very eyes. This is the chief cornerstone. This is Yahweh's provision. This is the way in which God would save them. And they're crying out, save us. And they quote again from the Psalms, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord or in the name of Yahweh. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest, you remember those angels, those angels announced the birth of Christ, crying out, glory to God, where? In the highest. Hosanna in the highest. Verse 10 tells us in our text, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Now, who do you often hear the Jews referencing as their father. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, they were quick to recognize who their father was, and that was who? Abraham, right? But here in this passage, they're not recognizing Abraham as their father. Instead, they're recognizing David as father. Why? Because this is a reference to the kingly line, right? The reference to King David, understanding that Christ is the one who sits up on that throne now. And so they don't use Abraham, they use David because they're referencing 
the king. It's an acknowledgement of who Christ is. This was the Messiah. Come to deliver his people. Come to save his people from their sin. He is our savior. For the lost, today may be the day of salvation for you. Because he is able to save now, just as they cried Hosanna. And he alone is able to save now. But you know, even though we call ourselves saved believers, he still remains our savior. He's still delivering us. And we're kept for a final deliverance. He daily delivers us from the power of sin in our lives. And I would encourage us today, whatever that sin is in your life that so easily besets you, that sin that you're struggling with, that sin that that keeps coming up and creating problems for you, cry out to Him today. Hosanna. Lord, save me now. Deliver me from this sin. Deliver me from this struggle. If we believe that He is Lord enough to deliver us from an ultimate penalty of sin, why is it we would not believe that He is Lord enough to deliver us day by day from the power of sin in our lives? I mean, if His work is sufficient enough that we could be in the presence of the Father one day, that we don't spend an eternity separated from Him, do you not think His sacrifice is enough to give you victory over the sin in your life right now today? That sin that we talked about earlier in their message being so sorrowful over? Well, listen, this is the answer, isn't it? This is the solution. This is how we find deliverance. It's in Him. And so whatever that is for you today, maybe it's an addiction, Maybe it's a strong desire. Maybe it's an action that you continually find yourself faced with. Whatever it is, that you would cry out to Him today and say, Lord, save me now. Give me victory. Be my deliverer. And then we get a final thing here in our text. In verse number 11. Notice finally the sovereign significance in our text. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. Now, here Mark gives some detail that's not found in the other Gospels. By the way, this occasion though, this triumphal entry as we call it, is only the second time, only the second occurrence that we find of something that Jesus did that's recorded in all four of the Gospels. All four Gospels give an account of Jesus' triumphal entry. But Mark gives some special detail here. Remember, he probably had a lot of influence from Peter at the time. Perhaps this was a reflection of Peter and a a memory of Peter's. As Jesus did something that almost seems insignificant when we look at it. You've seen him on the colt. You've seen him go down the, the road that's covered with the garments and the palms. You see the people shouting, Hosanna. But then Mark gives us this detail. 
that Jesus entered Jerusalem and he came into the temple and he looked around at everything. If there was one person worthy of inspecting the temple, there's the one person. And here is Christ as he comes. He looks around the temple and then he goes back to Bethany with the twelve because it was already late. Now, why is this significant? We read from Ezekiel chapter 11 this morning. And just for the sake of time, I'm not going to go back. But write down Ezekiel chapter 11 verse... Actually, you know what? We're going to do it anyway. It's all right. You're okay, right? Nod your head if you're okay. Somebody in the back back there is yawning a little bit. But it's all right. We're going to, we're going to hang in there. We'll make it. Look at Ezekiel chapter number 11. Because actually this is very significant. Ezekiel 11... And verse 22, in 586 B.C., Ezekiel sees this vision, and notice what happens. Ezekiel eleven twenty-two. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. This is important. We're talking about the glory of God, the glory that would hover there over the ark in the temple, between the cherubims on either side of the ark. This is where God met with people. This is where He would come and dwell. He would tabernacle, dwell with them. There in the Holy of Holies. Ezekiel sees this vision of the glory of God. And look at verse 23. The glory of Yahweh went up from the midst of the city. What city was the temple located in? Jerusalem, right? So the glory of God goes up in this vision from the temple, from the middle of Jerusalem, and stood over the mountain, which is to which side of the city? The east side of the city. You see that? I'm going to show you the significance here. In Ezekiel's vision in 586 B.C., the glory of God departs from the temple. It goes up from Jerusalem. It goes out the east gate to the mountain that's on the east side. Remember what mountain that was? We talked about it earlier today. Uh, The Mount of Olives, right? You remember what town is there on the Mount of Olives? Bethany, right? House of Sorrow. Now come back to Mark 11 and verse 11. And you see, where was Jesus at prior to coming into Jerusalem? He was on that mountain, right? Which gate would he have come in? Been the east gate. As he comes into Jerusalem, and where does he go to? He goes to the temple and looks around. Do you understand the significance? Are you seeing it yet? The glory of God that had departed from the temple out the east gate to the mountain, now we see Jesus who Hebrews chapter 1 and verse number 3 tells us is the radiance or the glory of God. The glory of God comes back through the east gate and is present in the temple. Just as the glory had departed, the glory has come. It was Christ himself. So here in Mark, we see the glory going from the mountain into the temple, which by the way, Christ himself is that temple. This is God dwelling, and that word means tabernacle. Remember the tabernacle and then the 
temple. Remember how he said the glory would hover between the two cherubims over the ark? That's where God would tabernacle, dwell with man. Christ is that temple or that dwelling among us. In John chapter 2, as we read this morning, Jesus said, destroy this what? Temple. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the people had a hard time with that. Well, how in the world is he going to raise up a temple that took us this long to build? But they come to find find out his disciples remembered at his resurrection what he had said. And who was the temple? It was Christ Jesus. He was the perfect temple. He was God dwelling with us. Emmanuel. God with us. You see, the king of glory was in their midst, about to meet the destiny to which he was called and for which he was born. Do you see him for who he is today? The glory of God has been made known to us in Christ Jesus. And as we come to the conclusion of this text this morning, I think we could all say together, Hosanna, Lord, save us now. Let's bow our heads and our hearts together for prayer. Father, your word amazes us every time that we open, as we hear from you and as you reveal yourself to us. We cry out, as those did at your coronation so many years ago, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Lord, save us now. I pray for the one who's heard the gospel today that they understand the problem of sin in their life, the separation that it creates in fellowship with you, the necessity of your wrath being poured out for sin, that God today, that you might grant them faith as they come and trust in your Son who took your wrath in their place, to be their Savior. That God, they come to a place of more than just sorrow, but to a place of repentance today. And God, I pray that for your children as well. That as you are speaking to us, that we would see ourselves in the sin that we struggle with, That, Lord, in our sorrow over sin, we would be repentant today, that we would forsake our sin, that, God, through Christ Jesus, we know today that we have the victory. Lord, I pray today you might deliver someone over that addiction, over that sin that's repeatedly before them. God, may they find their deliverance in Christ today. 
God, we come thanking you for our King, acknowledging Christ as our Sovereign and our Lord. Help us to be faithful as subjects of the King, to be loyal in our service to you, and to spread that good news to the nations that they might find life, they might find salvation in their King. And God, we pray that you would be honored as we continue in our time of worship today in remembrance of our King Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You have been listening to a message by the political pastor from his home pulpit. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. From 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Be sure to follow The Political Pastor by visiting thepoliticalpastor.com. Click on the subscribe link at the top of the page and learn how to subscribe to us and our various social media feeds. If you would like to learn more about Jesus Christ and His salvation, please visit thepoliticalpastor.com. Click on contact at the top of the page and write to us. We welcome the opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ.